welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm Joel Marshall. And I'm Pamela Lopez. And we have the pleasure to be sitting here today with Christopher Holmes, an amazing editor, um, who I've had the luck and good pleasure to work with, mainly because he was introduced to me by the head of post-production at Sony Columbia TriStar, where he was working, um, Jimmy Honore. So Chris has edited 45 movies from uh, Car Wash to Drive, he said, which was Jack Nicholson's only directed film, to five easy pieces. I mean, the list goes on and on, and um, we're very honored to have you here today. Thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into editing? <laughs> you didn't uh, say we go this far back. Well, uh, I was a, um, a dancer, believe it or not. And um, I was in high school and uh, was invited to dance uh, in I Was a Teenage Werewolf in a scene. So I started with a, an SAG card, dancing, uh, gave it up. I, I really didn't, that was not a career. But because of that association, I ended up... Um, Dating that the girl that invited me because her father produced the film and I ended up uh, Working as a messenger at American International Pictures I did all the beach blanket bingos and um, All the pit and the pendulums all so many films that uh, Vincent Price was known for American International Pictures, Pictures. Um, Became something else is that correct? Um, yes, but they they really uh, were known for B-movie there, there's. I don't think there's an equivalent in the business today, but because uh, James H. Nicholson and Samuel Z. Arkoff started as the primary partners, they had minor partners as well. Um, there's offshoots that just go on. I mean, it's like a tree that branched out. Uh, Joe Roth ended up marrying, uh, I believe, uh, Sam Arkoff's daughter. Let's see, Neil Moritz, I believe, uh, producing now is the son of Milt Moritz, who was. Uh, I don't know what his official title was, but he was in charge of advertising or marketing or something said there. And was Jimmy over at AIP? Jimmy Honore, who she spoke of before, um, started in the mailroom, uh, and I was already there as an apprentice editor. So, so from from being a messenger, they moved me into what they called posting, which is little three by five cards. We would post uh, gross amounts that films did. And uh, I was invited, by the time I, I uh, finished high school, they invited me into the editing room as an apprentice, also knowing that I was going to ultimately marry their daughter, I guess. They, <laughs> they saw the handwriting on the wall. So to finish that chapter, we did get married. We had five children, uh, and 12 and a half years later, we parted company. But getting into the editing room was uh, virtually the equivalent of um, to, to a lesser degree, almost like going to UCLA or USC film school. By the time I was in the editing room, I think within six months, because it was, it was B-movies, it was cheap. Everything we did was, uh, was kind of on the fly. But I was, uh, I'm looking at a gentleman here with the boom in my face. I was doing the same thing for pickup shots. I had, we had an in-house Aeroflex. We had a refrigerator full of short ends, any shots that were missed. Uh, we would just go out and pick up ourselves. I, I knew literally nothing about camera. And, you know, they just say, here, here's a camera, we'll go out and we'll get you the exposure and all that stuff. Uh, there was a period of time when they were doing uh, 
uh, race car pictures. You know, they were featuring the the the, the, the local roundy pounders, the equivalent, the, the forerunner to stock cars right now. So, for like six months, every Friday and Saturday, I would take the the Aeroflex with a collection of different lenses and go to the racetrack with with short ends, and then they bought small small rolls, 400 foot rolls, and I would shoot uh, the action at the local. Uh, racetrack they had a deal they already prepared so then after after the season I had recorded so many crashes then they would go to these people who repaired their cars who was like the the Dodge number 53 and we had a great a great crash with him instead of doing it stunts in stunts afterwards we waited pre-recorded it and then we would pre-cut it and, and, and develop the script around that. Then we would go out and make a duplicate car and put our, our lead people in those cars. So we'd already found the crashes that we wanted and we would fashion the story around that. So welcome to That's crazy. low budget filmmaking. Was Roger Corman in, in that? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Roger, uh, actually the first two pictures I cut were for Roger Corman. So. How was that experience? Oh, Roger's uh, a genius. He's brilliant, but and he was actually a very good uh, director. I don't, uh, you know, there's so many people from the Jack Nicholsons and and uh, there's Monty Hellman and uh, Francis Ford Coppola that have worked with him. Everybody speaks very highly of him, obviously. But I, from my perspective, I think he ended up being a better producer and businessman. He was he then formed his own business and went off and did that. I think he's done very well since then. But he actually if you look at his earlier pictures that he directed, I think he was a very good director. Very, very efficient though. I mean almost everything with him there's always an element of efficiency. So we should keep some kind of a running tally of how many people we've had on the show that worked with Roger Corman yeah. in some way. Yeah. We want to get him on the show as well. So, Roger, if you're out there, uh, please uh, <laughs> give us a call. We've called you. <laughs> <laughs> many times, Ron. Actually, uh, great compliment. Uh, I don't know him that intimately, but we certainly knew each other, and I saw him... Uh, some years later after I went on was working with other people and he turned to me and he said uh, it was a picture I did for 20th Century Fox called uh, Dirty Mary Crazy Larry which was one of the forerunners of the, the, the Go Faster uh, uh, car series and he said perfect editing perfect editing and I, I really took that as such a great compliment because he's everything was very efficient he liked things cut very tight and uh, for the story to move along so how did you end up editing Drive, she said, which was Jack Nicholson's uh, directorial debut? Drive, he said. Oh. Uh, actually, I was, uh, I, you work your way up at the time. You started as an apprentice, then moved, apprentice editor, moved into an assistant editor. Um, then you, everybody was trying to climb up the ladder, in a sense. So I moved into sound editing, and I was uh, a sound editor, and I'd worked on the Monkees uh, TV series. And... Through well, through the second parties, third, fourth, fifth parties. Actually, uh, another Jimmy in my life, Jimmy Nelson, was nice enough to suggest me to BBS Productions, Bert, Bob, and Steve, uh, as an editor on uh, primarily um, Five Easy Pieces. Five Easy Pieces is the third picture uh, that I cut, but it kind of back up because I'd worked with them prior to. 
then doing the two Roger Corman shows, but we had some associations, so when they needed an editor on Five Easy Pieces, Jimmy Nelson uh, referred me, and uh, I interviewed, didn't get the job, somebody else got it, two weeks later, something something happened or didn't happen, and I got a call, and they said, uh, they, they moved him out and uh, invited me in to work with him. So Jack Nicholson starred in that, um, and when, as, when I was in the final um, throes of editing, they, they actually they had uh, Jack shooting his next picture, and they saved dailies for me, because I think at the time I was the hot young kid who worked uh, 16 hours a day, and so they very nicely moved me over to that. So uh, I had the pleasure of working with Jack Nicholson. I'd, I'd had him on screen in uh, Easy Pieces, and then got to work with him uh, uh, on his... Uh, his directorial debut. So you, um, you're, I mean, for people that aren't, can't see Chris, he's a very sort of imposing figure. He's kind of like, uh, he's kind of like the Henry Rollins of his day. Very, very buff, very yeah. handsome. Six very, foot eight. Yeah. Well, no, very, very sort of aggre <laughs> aggressive physically and s somewhat intimidating. Well, I'm going to have to polish my mirror a little bit. <laughs> no, but I'm just bringing that up because you've worked with like Sly Stallone and, and some of these big macho guys, yep. and um, there's something very interesting about the dynamic of what goes on between the editor and the director. That can you talk a little bit about the dynamic between you and how how that relationship works? Yeah, uh, it's very interesting. I hadn't, we, I hadn't thought about it, but it, it in fact has been there. Um, you can't see me and I'm not unhappy about that. But now I'm gray-haired. And I, when, I meet, when I meet directors, I don't get the same response that I've gotten through the rest of my career. Because now I'm, I guess I'm not threatening. There's something that has happened in physicality. Whereas I used to, I would meet some directors uh, in interviews set up by agents and things, and you could, I, I hadn't even sat in the seat, and you could tell there was a dislike or there was something that, that happened, so. Um, what happens in that whole business is is very strange. After I did Rocky II, um, that's all people wanted me for was for action films because I sort of fit the bill physically. Um, I was married to a stunt woman for, uh, oops, I'm telling a lot of uh, personal secrets, but I was married to a stunt woman for nine and a half years. I stayed in shape myself. I, uh, I raced and rode motorcycles. I flew planes, climbed rock, did a lot of things. I played four-wall handball, which nobody knows about, but uh, I always stayed in shape because you're, there's still, um, I guess, in from my perspective, there's still a boy in me. There's sort of a child. I like to play. I like to move. And sitting in an editing room is incredibly confining work, and I need, I, I felt like I needed to, to let the boy off leash, and so I always stayed in shape and, and uh, expressed myself physically. So. So did you? How did you relate with Sly Stallone when when you were making that picture? <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> uh, actually, um, oh boy, Sly, you don't listen to this, I'm sure. Um, I didn't feel, even when I got the job, I, I didn't feel like we really clicked, to be very honest. Uh, his uh, career at that time was he had worked his way up, he had written, um, 
Rocky starred in it, and it was just an explosion at the time. He was like the biggest thing on on everything, and rightfully so. so I thought it was a great film. And then he did two more pictures. I think one Norman uh, Jewess and Fist, and uh, he did another which he wrote. Uh, directed, starred in, wrote the title song, sang the title song, uh, Paradise Alley at Universal, and both were, I think, considered financially not successful. So by the time I paired with him on Rocky II, Rocky II had the feeling of it's a make or break for Sly Stallone. So if he didn't make it in Rocky II and there was no guarantee, that was it. He was a flash in the pan. So uh, this was very important stuff to him. And he had so much on his shoulders. He had to get in shape for the fight. He had to, to work with the choreography. It's a dance. It, he doesn't just get out and ad lib. I mean, it's scripted. But they had they had, had everything. Let's see who's the stunt coordinator? Jimmy Nickerson. Uh, they had it choreographed down to a T. Um, you know, two steps to your left, you faint, and then you throw a hook, and it's blocked, and blah blah blah. That's for a, a number of different rounds. Um, the first round was the reception. It wasn't uh, a, a boxing round last three minutes. I don't think it quite ran three minutes, but there were seven takes with seven cameras. Uh, that's a daunting amount of film to go through when nobody's really punching uh, the other person to try and find uh, angles where you can cheat it and put a sound effect in it to sell it. Um, now, when you edit a fight scene like that, do you have the the whole choreography? Do you okay? Do you work with the stunt coordinator in any way, or do you just get a, a whole bunch of film and then you have to make some story out of it? Um, the latter. You just get okay. the film and you distill it down to what works. Um, uh, I, I must admit, when I saw my first day and then my first week's dailies, I was scared to death. I didn't think I could make anything work because you're watching the round uninterrupted and and, uh, and somebody's throwing a, a jab and it falls in, in dead profile. It's 18 inches shy of hitting his opponent's chin and the, the opponent flicks his head back and it looks you know, like he got the, 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 the punch and you just don't know how you can make this work. It ends up being you sort it down to almost all sort of over shoulder when it occurred because uh, they'd have the, the choreography down, but they always didn't have the relationship to cameras perfectly as an over-shoulder. So you just kept working with it until you got it to that point where they're over-shoulders or, or the motion carries it and you put sound effects in. If you watch any of those boxing shows and you take the sound effects out, uh, anything prior to, um, prior to CGI, uh, take the sound effects out, just, just watch it without sound, you'll, it begins to show what it really is. So, that no, nobody gets punched, so. Occasionally they do, but, but very seldom. But like in um, Raging Bull, you know how his cheeks are like flapping and mm -hmm. stuff? How do they do that? I think that's slow motion, but uh, that was a different group, a different team, and I, I think that uh, even Sly, I know, uh, honestly, took some shots, uh, some punches, but not not killer shots. I mean, they're designed so the sweat flies off, and uh, uh, I think it's all fair to say he took he took some good shots, but no more than you don't need your your uh, star knocked out. So uh, you can't <laughs> can't go forward with that. So. 
I did a picture before that, a uh, boxing picture before that with uh, um, John Voight called The All-American Boy, which uh, didn't, didn't do well. Uh, he took some awesome shots. I, cu I couldn't believe it. He'd go on. He got punched so solidly. I mean, it really rocked him. You could see it go. When you studied it frame by frame, you could see it rock, the shockwave go through his body. So. Wow. And after Rocky II, did you continue to in that sort of vein to do yes. this kind of? Unfortunately, I did because that, you know, you, you have an agent, he wants you to work. He gets his money when you work. And as you alluded to before, uh, maybe I'm not the softest image when I walk in, but people began, you, you realize that people see you as an action guy, you know, and what more fitting to, to cut an action scene than an action guy, it, it, which has no correlation whatsoever, so. Did you think that was detrimental to your career at all? Uh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because I really love drama. Uh, I, you know, and I'd love to cut to five easy pieces and those types of films more. I, I enjoy because editing to a certain it's 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 a distillation, but it's also a manipulation uh, process too. Uh, for instance, in easy pieces, um, you're you're cutting from actors like television, you know, a talking head to a talking head, and I got got into a routine of whenever there was a silent reaction cutaway or some nods and things like that, I would intentionally go investigate uh, reactions to other lines of dialogue. It's, it's like an actor say, who the hell do you think you are? And you cut to that person for the eye opening, what, you know, what, look? Mm -hmm. I, I would go investigate every other reaction I had just to compare and see which really worked best. Um, because sometimes when you follow the obvious, it's not as interesting as when you put in something slightly conflicting. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, not to pull me off, I get in a tangent, but uh, take you to Terry Garr, who always amazed me. Uh, I never, I can't say I thought she was a great actress, but I, somehow I started analyzing her performance and what her physicality was saying as compared to her dialogue. And it was almost like she was always in pain. It's like if she, she always played the mother or the wife or something, and she's probably best known for Tootsie, being the girlfriend of Tootsie. But her physicality, it's like, oh, she was in pain or something contrary. Like, you know, you'd hear the door open and somebody say, honey, I'm home. And she'd say, oh, hi. But it wasn't, oh, hi. It's like, oh, hi. She always did these conflicting things, which uh, I thought was in, incredibly interesting, and that that was so much of her style. So, can you talk a little bit about what um, you, you've alluded to? What editing is, I guess, in, in terms of distillation and manipulation. But if you were to um, explain what it is that it's your job to do as an editor, uh, what would that be? Well, it's which job you want to talk about. First of all, it's keeping the director happy so you continue working with him or her. Um, and I've really come to believe be, because I have changed throughout the years I've been doing this. Uh, I've matured. I've changed. I see directors doing the same thing. Their work is not the same. If you look at, at, at say, a, scan of, a span of 10 films that a director has done, you're going to see his style changes and shame on him or her if they don't. They want to grow. We all want to grow. 
Um, so I, I, I've come to the point, because I did bump heads with directors early on, in, going back to Sly, on, on Rocky II, I quit. We, we had an impasse. It looked like we were going to get physical. Nobody needs that. I'm, I moved on. I went to the producer and said, I, you know, I'm kind of over for this job. So uh, lost the love, so let's move on. And then I did two more pictures. So I quit him. Then somehow uh, there were some other moments in between, but then he got on another picture. I guess that uh, he felt that he needed me again, called me in on, on Nighthawks, came and did Nighthawks. We had another tiff. We ended up in, uh, in, a, in a lawsuit at Universal, and um, it was resolved. Uh, without us, you know, having a confrontation, and then he brought me in again. They bring you in; you don't bring yourself in. So he brought me in again when he directed uh, *Staying Alive*, but in sort of a lesser role because Don Zimmerman and Mark Warner were, were the primary editors. But we had such an accelerated schedule; they needed five editors on it. Wow! It was, it was at a point in time when interest rates were through the roof. And Paramount just said, let's wham, bam, and get it out the door. So, um, and I, I recently saw him, uh, I was at Sony, and uh, saw him when he did his Rocky Balboa, and uh, uh, said hello, gave me a big hug, we're the best of friends. He's, uh, he, uh, he's entitled to have his ups and downs, too, by the way. I mean, think about getting in shape, doing the choreography, writing, directing, Think of any of the Rockies. It, it's that's no piece of cake. You're particularly when you're directing, you're acting. You've got to be in physical shape, and it requires a lot of stamina. So uh, he has he has his moments, and I've been told I have mine. So. Uh, so besides keeping the director happy, what are the other um, facets to the directing job? Um, editing job. Let me let me I just, mean editing job. just back up. Um, what I meant to the where I was going with that is I look at a director now and I realize uh, I, you know sometimes you're not in sync with the director. First thing I look at is I, I want to know what's your vision, what is the director's vision, and I will go after that uh, so honestly it's almost ridiculous. But I've also been aided by uh, digital technology because now I can I can edit or anybody can edit uh, a film capture that vision which they'll describe to you, which you may not agree with. Park it and you can go on and manipulate. Whereas back in the day, as we say, when it was filmed, you had to unsplice everything. You, it, it was so, um, it, it, you, it was like twice the work because whatever you had edited, you don't have fresh dailies. You were, you were editing film. Uh, finite film. There's only one strand of film. So if you wanted to, to go back and edit the scene in a different fashion, you had to undo all that you had done, and it'd be difficult to get it again, and go uh, on down the road in another pursuit. So frequently to say, no, let's go back, put it the way it was, and you know, what, pull your I, hair. I'd like to know also at that time, like you say back in the day, when you had to splice film, which mm -hmm. some people do, I guess very few people do at this mm -hmm. point. Um, what was the team like as compared now, compared to then? How many people did it take to, uh, you know, in the editing room to put together a film as opposed to now? Is it less? Is it more? Is it, hmm. it, it's, it, it's quite, it's evolved uh, immensely. I feel, um, I feel a bit sorry, in a sense, for a lot of people to get into editing now because they didn't have the advantage of, of 
what my generation did. And that, that is you'd stand around almost like a hand servant uh, in the room with an, with an editor. They would make cuts and the, that film, which we wouldn't use, is called trims, and you just hand it off to somebody. They would look at the edge numbers to see what, whether it's the close-up or the full shot, and they would hang it on a, a hook with the appropriate uh, trims, you know, with the rest of it. So they were very close, as an assistant or an apprentice, you were very close to the whole process. And as an editor myself, I, I had a need, you need to, you've got this internal um, uh, squirrel cage going on, you know, where your, your thoughts are, are just running and your mind is going like a squirrel in a squirrel cage, you know, you have thoughts. And it is very helpful to turn around and say to somebody, whether you're patting yourself on the back or not, it's another matter, say, now, look at this. This doesn't work, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Well, the whole time you're doing that, you're giving a lesson to this younger person. They begin to see the thought process. They begin to see the selectivity. You see why you don't do things this way or you do do things that way. Whereas today, uh, I think most editors sit in a, a dark room with an enormous screen digitally and um, particularly on, on big features, their assistants are clustered in outer rooms. So it, it really depends upon the relationship between the editor and the assistants, whether he brings them in or not. I've, I've always, um, uh, I, first of all, I always fall back on youth because we make most of our films for youth and, and everybody's younger than me at this point. But. <laughs> But uh, you always bring the kids in, you know, you cut a scene and you say, come on, let's have coffee, everybody come in and uh, I'll spank you if you're not honest and here we run the scene, tell me what do you think. Eh, eh. I hate ambiguity when they don't tell you anything. Uh, and I also hate it when they, oh, that's marvelous, you know, <laughs> that crap. So you, you learn because uh, you're learning, that's your first audience is, all, to me it was always the apprentice and the assistants and I don't know, how everybody does it today. I would think a lot of people uh, still do it that way. But, uh, I mean, the, so many films I was on where uh, you come out of dailies and my eye would go to the assistants and the apprentices and they're so disinterested. And you look over at the producer and the director of your age, oh, this is marvelous, we have a wonderful film. And I'm thinking, you, these are the guys you're selling tickets to and they're not seeing it. So uh, it's an odd phenomenon. Tell me a little bit about um, one of the things we talked about briefly, which is about the beginning of the movie and how the first 15 minutes have to capture the buyer. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you mean when, when you say that. Yeah, um, that really comes about because I, I came, this is nepotism, I, I got into the business as described uh, through American International Pictures, and they would buy uh, foreign films, we would recut them, we would buy uh, Italian actioners uh, early on and we would revoice them and dub them into a, a American English, et cetera, et cetera. But in this whole process, uh, for one thing, I, as an apprentice, I used to earn overtime money um, taking, uh, going to uh, James H. Nicholson's house and running his projector at night. Uh, it was kind of a steal because I was his son-in-law, and they had a they had a live-in cook, and the the wine was fine, etc. But I got paid for being the projectionist. And when in those system in that time of of uh, and still, I think today all major players have their own theaters in house, 
and people gather together and they'll see films in private screenings and whatnot. So this is, this is a real uh, studio theater in his house that I, I would be the projectionist for. Um, but it, it wasn't always for entertainment, it was for business and he would have buyers, he would have producers, directors, so many people and as, a, as an apprentice editor, by the time I'd finish projecting the film and I'd come back out and just be around this group, um, I learned so much about the business end because that's what it is. It's, this is not art for fun, this is art for commerce. and. Um, but a lot of young people don't realize, I mean, you know, it's art and sure, you've, you've took you five years to write the script and another two to get financing and, and you know, it's a 10-year effort, etc. But there's going to be somebody in, in a film festival like, like Cannes where you see these, these buyers uh, leaving within 12 minutes of the start of the film. And you say, what, are they offended? No, they've got it. They see tw 12 minutes of the film and they've got to go see 20 other pictures. And they pass a judgment literally within five, you've been there, Kamala, what, five, 10, 15 minutes? They don't sit and see the whole movie. Uh, they, they pass judgment quickly and oddly enough, they're very skilled at it. They really have a keen eye and uh, People don't understand that uh, you got to catch your audience, all audiences, the ones paid for and those buyers as well. You've got to uh, catch them very early. So, uh, going a little different, uh, a little different spin on that. I think that most uh, most editors of feature films would agree that the majority of the work you do is in the first act. So something on paper for uh, on a script, when they sell the script, it reads so well. You need to describe how tall he is or how his physicality. You need to do that. And uh, by the time you you film scenes, it's 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 a po and you the audience gets the message in a postcard. Boom, that's it. You know you you see the town with with smoke coming from burning building, you got it, and you just move on. You don't need two pages of description, et cetera, et cetera. So we condense down the first act far more than any other act or part of the film. The first act is, is hammered. I mean, hammered down to, condensed down to uh, a tremendous uh, degree. So, and why why specifically the first one? Because of that whole thing about catching the audience immediately. I, I don't know. But frequently, I'll, I'll spin off a little bit more. And from uh, probably early '80s on, uh, when the uh, when the rental the, the the VHS rental stores were doing booming business, they became uh, financial partners to independence, more independence than feature films. And this created a body of work for me that I, I spent like 15 years being like a film doctor. And the reason what would happen is they would get their funding partially from the blockbusters or whoever the players were of the day uh, without having theatrical distribution. So they, because budgets are pieced together in many different pieces with different players for different reasons. Uh, so they would produce an independent film for a few million dollars and then they go try and sell it. Well, then when they try and sell it, uh, now the reality sets in. They didn't have the, 
they didn't have the scrutinous eye of like the studio knowing, and the studio has problems too, they condense things down, but they weren't as good as they thought they were. They wouldn't get the distribution. So I, I sort of gained a reputation as a film doctor to go on these pictures and you kind of analyze, what can you do? You've shot it, you've cast it, you've shot it, you've spent all your money. Uh, how do you change it to make it um, worth distribution, worthy of distribution? The only thing you can do uh, without reshooting or spending a lot of money is you re-edit it. You take another approach on it. And so I began to come in and see instantly, I'm looking for where's the conflict? Where's that point of conflict? And if it doesn't happen almost instantly, uh, I mean, that's what I'm looking for. And I would move parts of it around just like the way you would a puzzle. You know, I'd find the point of conflict and bring that up within the first few minutes so you knew what the conflict was. Then if I had to tell through a character a flashback, and you, you see this all the time, even with uh, uh, this television series, Lost. They have a lot. Of, they do a lot of explaining through flashback. They start at a certain point and they flash back. Sometimes it's an awkward tool and it shouldn't be the first tool on your belt. But you you find out what is the essence of this picture. I I even now when I look at any picture, I look for what I call the buy-in point. When do I, as an audience, just buy in and go, Yeah, I got it. I like this. I'm gonna I'm gonna travel the course. Um, because we, we all go to theaters now. I mean, has anybody ever talked about how many truly bad movies there are out there? Does anybody think that people set out to make a truly bad movie? I mean, it's it's not easy to make a good one, but I can't believe at times how bad some films are. You just, uh, um, your jaw drops, so. So how come they're in the theater? Because if a studio funds that, if, and somebody else has, let's say, is the same genre, better picture, and wants to sell to studio. Tough. The studio has backed it. They've made a slot for it. That's the horse they they brought to the racetrack, and they're going to race it. And uh, by the fact that they have the power to block everybody else out at times. So I've done a couple of uh, independent films which I thought had great potential, never got into the marketplace. Um, because they, they, nobody had an investment in it. Wow. So, so you've, you've worked a lot for all the major studios and you've also worked independently. Do you have any advice for, first of all, which do you prefer both, obviously from, from the perspective of your pocketbook, I'm sure you prefer working for a studio, but in terms of editing and the art form of editing, do you prefer working independently? Um, Absolutely, I prefer independence. I mean, I've really, it takes me back to the days, like the Roger Corman days. Those were fun days to me. Because even though you, your picture may have its problems, all stories have certain, to a certain degree, a, a, a problem area. But it's, it's a very few people working the problems out. You, if you're sitting with Roger Corman, the, the director I did two pictures with was Danny Haller, wonderful guy. You work those problems out amongst the three of you to the best you could. Today, it's it's a, a group growth. I mean, you go to a studio and God bless them, I don't, I don't know what their titles are, but there's always 15 or 20 people meeting. You can't, you can't do it through committee. You know, if they hire uh, talent, go with the talent. And if the talent, you know, what does baseball do? Uh, baseball doesn't cover their guys up. If they can't hit anymore, boom, they're out. You know, they, even though they paid, you know, $10 million for them to be a, 
uh, um, home run hitter, if they don't do it over the course of a year, they'll trade them. They'll bench them. They get rid of them. Boom, next. And that's uh, state. I guess what I'm saying is stay with the talent until it, it fails you. Then don't go there. But that's not what they do. They being studio. the studio. I mean, the studios now, they're, they're approaching. In television, they have showrunners, which are highly experienced, intelligent people that are sort of, they, they play part of the role of a director and, and mostly a producer. You're talking about a product that is sold by the minute uh, and has to have an air date. You've got to make your air date. You can't say, no, we're still perfecting it. You have to make that date weekly. It's a business run like a business, which every aspect of it is, you know, I mean, uh, features, television, all of it. Um, and they've kind of crowded, I feel they've crowded the director out. A director has very little time in television. They direct, but they're not, they don't have time to sit and work with their edit. They, and they yield the power to quote, the quote showrunners. And uh, I, hope, I hope it doesn't sound like I have any odd, odd or bad feeling story. It's just the way it, it, it happens. These are generally very, very well experienced people. Um, and that's the way I see features going that way too. And when they have groups of people, they have four, five, six people come in. I mean, when you, when you, when they enter your room, you you, you want to ask, could everybody wear a uh, you know a name tag and a badge? I mean, you know, the military people have stripes and and clusters on How their collars. Who, who to listen to? Do they talk to just one person and the person talks to you, or do people talk directly to you as an editor? It, it really depends. Um, they usually will talk to uh, if there's a director involved. They talk directly to the director as they should. And are you there when they're talking to the director? Or sometimes depends. Uh, I mean, I've done. It's like I did five at least. I think I've done five pictures with Dino De Laurentiis. Bless his heart. Uh, he's one of my favorites. Dino is quite senior now. He's still working though. But Dino had a way because we'd go to his screening room and uh, I must uh, say most of the pictures I worked on with him I came in as a film doctor so he, he would somehow sneak me in sometimes uh, not to the director's liking most times not to the director's liking and then he at the end of the screening when we'd present him with the, the newest cut Chris come and we'd, he'd just get up and bolt for his office and he would call me and the director and producer it's kind of realizing, oh, uh, this is the boss, you know. We'd all go up to Dino's office, and he had a flatbed, and we'd put it there, and then we'd discuss it in, in detail, because he would talk directly to me and tell me what to do. Do this, do that, I like, no, 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 out, 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 you know, so. How do editors get along in situations like that? Like, let's say you were editing a movie, and then they brought in a, a doctor to doctor the film. Uh, do you get in arguments with the other editors, or you know, is there any kind of contention between editors? No, because that that would probably mean they're in the unemployment line. So <laughs> I mean, it's not like I, I've had done the I have had a situation or two where they bring you on as a second editor, and I think they've had in their mind from the the onset that I would take over, or they're looking to take over, they're looking to eclipse that editor and director. And then four, six weeks later, that person gets uh, you know, a little bonus money and everybody goes away and then it falls in my lap or, or the, the doctor's lap in a sense. Tell me about your experience as a director. No. <laughs> no? <laughs> it, it was very painful, uh, something I, I never, I directed one picture, never should have. 
my luck ran out um, just on so many levels. Um, I wanted to do something very small because I, I really wanted to grow because it is a growth cycle. I mean, uh, first of all, I got to tell you, as an editor, um, as long in the tooth as I am, I've sat through so many lunches with other editors and we all sit around and talk about how we could have directed this and how it should have been done. And so we're, this goes on forever, forever. And then you get behind the camera and it's not as easy as it seems. It's, it's a tough one. You have to be lucky too. And I was not lucky. Where I w was lucky is uh, nobody, I don't think anybody will ever see it, so. <laughs> So you were saying that you um, think this digital sort of editing revolution is is got its its pluses. What what systems are you working now on Avid? Do you work Final Cut Pro? What um, how do you feel about the new technology out there? Um, well, I love the technology. Um, uh, I haven't fully mastered it in the sense I don't I don't assist myself. I never want to. Because even if I if I became so proficient uh, at computers, I'd waste so much time. I, I just want to edit. That's what I do. Make those choices. So uh, I like to have young people around me that that handle all the highly technical stuff. Um, I do use Avid's because it seems to be the standard of the industry. Um, there's always questions as to whether you could get accurate. Uh, addressing systems. People have to understand the negative runs through the camera, it's, it's exposed on set, you record it, and it goes into a laboratory, it's developed, um, then they capture that image digitally on a tape and it comes back to you. So when I come up with a cut, what we call a cut, okay, fine, lock, that's it, final cut, then it has to either go to the negative cutter to have the negative matched back accurately frame accurate to the ins and out points. So um, Avid seemed to master this, I think, at least from the perception of the Hollywood industry. They, they mastered it better than anybody else. That and was the, the other one. Final Pro. Cut Pro. No, well, Final Cut Pro is, is, is coming in, but it's always, seems to have always snuck in through the economics of it. And I'm sorry to say, I just don't have enough experience with it to really have any judgment. A lot of um, my peers, there are some that, that love it, but most of the peers feel that it is not as intuitive in its selection tools as Avid. Uh, I really have not personally done uh, the homework, so uh, I prefer to stay with Avid. If, uh, if I'm gonna do a Final Cut Pro, um, I'd like, you know, we want to know in advance if that's the way it's going to go, then take some time, go learn, uh, learn it, and uh, take it from there. But I don't think in the final analysis it's a whole lot different than, than Avid, so. But there, there are, I'm told, incredible systems. I mean, even Final Cut Pro, the things that they can do is just unbelievable, and particularly for uh, young filmmakers that don't have uh, money to spend, that is almost certainly the way to go. One more, I wanted to ask one more question about a lot of directors now are, are editing during the filming process. Do you ever get involved in a situation like that? 
do you mean they're personally editing or uh, they're, they're at night there might be editing scenes uh, from no, the movie no what chris is saying do, oh. the the editor is editing while the director is shooting right, right right no it's always been that way um, the two different systems were i've worked first of all i've worked all over europe i've worked in india and africa and different places and there's there's different styles everywhere you go like in, i did a picture in france and uh, i would i was cutting as as what we call dailies dailies um, is, is the work that they shot the day before, or why they're called dailies, or they're also called rushes. Once they're in your hand, you're supposed to edit it as soon as possible. Um, I, even on a feature, if you talk to post-production people, they'll tell you that an editor is supposed to be X number of days, quote, behind camera, meaning time elapsed from when it passed through the camera to the time you have have made a cut of that scene and if you think about it from a business perspective sometimes let's say if I had edited a scene and I feel oh we either need an insert you know a, a, or an establishing shot or you need a pickup something like that if they've struck the set if they've broken the set down or if you've traveled to another city another location uh, it's much more difficult to get that so there was always that aspect you are supposed to say as close behind camera as possible but when you get into shows with multiple cameras, three cameras, two cameras, it's just that much more difficult. Um, all action scenes have multiple cameras at multiple speeds. I mean, it's a, it's a nightmare. So uh, you always are obligated to stay as close behind camera as possible so that, you know, if you're four weeks behind camera, that's not a good sign. You're supposed to be, I think, around two weeks behind camera. This is why you almost should live in the editing room. Don't waste the time going home. So. I mean, uh, editing a feature film today is probably 12 hours a day in an editing room. For how many days? How many uh, weeks? Uh, five days a week, as long as it takes. Uh, they've long before they shoot the film, they've already got it booked in theaters. You know, if it's a summer or the the bigger budgets go for summer, uh, the popcorn season. Um, the better films go for fall, and uh, I don't know, the, the discoveries and wannabes come up in the spring. So, so what do you think is, is a reasonable um, post-production time period to spend on your edit? I'm saying this because I'm still editing and I shot a year ago. Uh, until I get my next job. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, it really depends. I mean, if you shoot 24 days, that's a very tight schedule. That's a very low-budget picture. So if you're going to be a week behind camera, then 24 days plus a week, 24 working days plus a week, you should have something that approaches a first cut. Um, and by the way, if you shoot, uh, let's say you're, you're coming up with a 90-minute um, product, which is... Uh, the standard for a feature film, um, you don't have a lot of, of overage. You don't have a lot of takes, a lot of angles. You don't have the, the hero shots. You don't have the god shots because you're, you're working on a shoestring. So there's not a lot to, to work with. Um, if, if there are problems, then it may be of the nature of coming back and looking at, like I say, from more of a restructuring. Well, let's start here. Now it's an exploration. It's sort of like, even though it's in the it's on the editing clock, it's really like a rewrite. 
you know, just to, to bring up a, a film that I really enjoyed, uh, Pulp Fiction. If you look at Pulp Fiction, you could take that apart and structure as a linear story. And when I first saw it, I wondered, did they restructure that? I've never seen the the uh, script. The hero, no, and I've never seen the hero die in the middle of a story. You know, how do you do that? And then you bring him back to life. It's clever. So. Um, that's that's just a good example of what can be done editorially if you're if you're lucky to have pieces that would play like that um, that's, those are just other approaches you can do and it's done that type of thing is done to some degree and a lot of pictures you wouldn't think uh, that are structured like that but I'm, what I'm saying is they restructure in editing and it, it'll seem like that was the way the story should go when when you edit a film, how closely do you look at the script? Do you ever go back and look at the script, or is it something that's so far gone now that you're into some new realm? Hmm. Um, I don't think that I, I I don't go back that often, but I know it pretty pretty well. I don't have a great memory. Um, I, I can't remember ver, verbatim uh, lines and things, but. Uh, you know, if, if you're looking at six takes of this and of the of the two shot, and another six takes of the close up, and three of of the over shoulder, and so many of the master, that's that's what you're working with. It, you know, if they didn't get something that was in the script, mm -hmm. um, shame on them. So everybody should know by that time. But uh, there's different ways of looking at it. You'll you'll know there's a reveal in this scene. Evidence is something's revealed that that is a story, a plot point, and goes forward like that. Then you you sort of know how to treat that in a different way. But no, I don't. Uh, some yeah, there are times I go back over and wonder, it, particularly if it's not working, what did I miss? And you go back and and look at it. So. All right, I think we're at the end of the show now. And at the end of the show, as is tradition, we do a thing called Film Bites, where we give little pieces of information to people out there uh, who might be making their first film, uh, be it a feature film, short film, whatever, things that we've learned along the way. Um, well, I have a film bite that pertains more to um, the relationship, the reason that, that I even know Chris Holmes, and that is, um, as a, as a beginning filmmaker, sometimes you may think that there are certain people that are beyond your reach. Now, I mean, I was doing a very, it was my, actually it was my first short film. It was called Please, and uh, it was in trouble editorially. It didn't make any sense. And it would never have crossed my mind that I would have the editor of Five Easy Pieces working on my movie. Um, but that's what happened. And so I think that as, um, as young filmmakers or as first-time filmmakers, there's, there's no harm in trying to ask for people that are incredibly talented and experienced. They, the, the, the fact of the matter is that people like to work and they like to be brought into the present. They like to meet new filmmakers. So give it a try. If you want to use a cinematographer, an editor, or a costume designer that it seems beyond your reach, I don't think that you should stop yourself. I think you should try. You should contact them. Yes, I agree. Actually, you know, we've, we've, if you can tell by the body of my work that I'm not exactly a kid, but that's... 
that's my joy is working with younger people. Younger people keep me younger, I think, than, than I actually am. It's like uh, some of my contemporaries are retiring. What a, it's a scary thought to me. I don't, I don't want to do it. I absolutely love editing to this day. Uh, I don't like editing for free. I mean, you're talking about young filmmakers. Um, I don't have to get rich. I just enjoy the, the process, and I really do enjoy working with younger people. It's, uh, it's uh, the pleasure. Maybe it's because I think I'm like show I'm smart here and there. I don't know. But uh, so, what would one a film bite be? What would be some advice that you would give to a, a young uh, or a novice filmmaker about editing? Filmmaker as an editor. You're talking about specifically because we are categorized. You're an actress, no, you're a producer, you're a director, somebody, writer. Somebody that's making a movie, what are some pitfalls in the editing process um, that you could prevent them from falling into? Well, you've lived with the script as long as you have. If, it, it has, if it's reached the criteria that you set out for yourself, fine. Uh, don't look at it any other way. But if it hasn't reached a level where, obviously everybody that makes a film wants it distributed or, or handled. You now enter the business world. You want to get a reward for it. You want to get something back for it. Um, if you're not coming up to that, I think you do have to reach out and be open to other people like like yourself. I mean, I didn't we we did a fair amount of manipulation in, in your film, right? You have to be open to that. Uh, and of course, the first thing that people say is, I, I've spent all my money, I don't have any more money, but what else can you do? I mean, you've, that's the easiest thing to try, other than, uh, I think Woody Allen throws away, you know, a vast amount of film that he shoots and he reshoots it, you know? You just keep reshooting until you get it right, but that's costly, so. Uh, you gotta persevere, this is not. Everybody thinks it's gonna be such an easy ride, it isn't, so. I think that's my film by too, from uh, knowing Chris Holmes is, uh, take care of yourself you know a lot of times in in movies and things we pe artists are are pictured as people who are suffering and taking drugs and drinking a lot of alcohol and this is somehow uh, some muse for them uh, i think you got to take care of yourself because it is a long long ride and um you know all this smoking and drinking that goes on uh you see the effects of that with people and you see that they don't really last and they can't do all the things that they wanted to do and Chris, I mean, my God, this guy is like a, like a, a tank, <laughs> and, he, and he's definitely somebody that you know. He's he's very young and 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 vital. So it's great because you're gonna want to work your entire life. You know, you're not gonna the people that have this goal that they want to retire and sit on a beach. If you're a filmmaker, you really don't really want to do that kind of thing. I don't think when it comes down to it, you'd it's rather too work. Boring. <laughs> yeah. So thanks, Chris, for coming on the yeah, show. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs>